This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So if you read in on the Bloomberg Terminal right now, you'll find many stories involving the White House, the president specifically, President Trump pointing a finger at Iran, President Trump saying it doesn't matter, President Xi agrees to a meeting at G20, President Trump slamming the Fed's Jay Powell again. So a plethora of starting points for our Craig Gordon, Washington Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News. He's joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. What's going on with the White House right now, Craig? Just about everything. You, you pretty much hit it all. Uh, Donald Trump did an interview with his favorite television show, Fox and Friends, this morning, um, and they and they did cover the gamut. Um, they asked some good questions, and he he gave them the answers he gave them. I think right now the one we're paying the most attention to is the situation in Iran, where Trump said, you know, obviously it was the Iranians that uh, that uh, you know hit those two uh, oil tankers, and uh, if they try to tra- uh, close the Straits of Hormuz. We're not going to let them. Um, so that's a little bit, you know, sounds a little bit aggressive, although I have to say from where we sit in Washington, when we first heard about this early yesterday morning, I actually thought they, the Trump and Pompeo might use this as a bit of an excuse to really ratchet up the language on Iran. That hasn't that hasn't really happened. Um, they actually sent out their U.N. A representative the other day to say we still want to negotiate, we still want to do diplomacy, and even Trump's comments today, you know, a little bit of chest beating, but but nowhere near as, as bad as it could have been. And so just sticking with that, Craig, I mean, does most foreign policy attention within the administration now shift to Iran because there are some other issues going on, not the least of which is China, not the least of which is North Korea. How much oxygen is this taking at this moment? I think quite a lot, actually, and a little bit of that is because Trump himself has made quite an issue of of Iran. Obviously, people remember um, he essentially pulled the United States out of the Iran nuclear deal Mm -hmm. um, and, and has been, you know, pretty aggressive um, toward the Iranians. It's actually one of the places where Trump can sort of claim some foreign policy success. The sanctions that the United States has put in against Iran since they pulled out of the deal have hurt the Iranian economy. Um, the, the leadership there, uh, Rouhani and company, are under a little bit of pressure um, as it's, it, you know, their economy is drying up a little bit. So Trump definitely has wanted to kind of keep the pressure up um, we don't know why he isn't doing more with this or being more aggressive. Um, you would want to imagine that it's because it's not an area of the world that you would um, speak about cavalierly. Obviously, um, you know, pretty pretty serious uh, results could happen if you started to get a little more aggressive there. So right now, um, they seem to be satisfied with kind of having a, a little bit of rhetorical, um, you know, attacks against the Iranians. So far, no sign at all, and believe me, we've been asking about any stepped-up idea of a military right. response to these uh, these attacks. Craig, I do wonder how all of this fits in, one, against the U.S.-China trade talks, right? Because that's been something we've been all focused on for the last month or so. So we've got all this other stuff now all of a sudden um, kind of clouding the discussion or, I don't know, complicating it perhaps. And then I think, how does this all fit in ahead of the G20 uh, in a week or so that I do wonder if, if – Something the White House is doing is putting so much stuff out there that kind of President Trump's going to be the bell of the ball at the G20. Yeah, look, I mean, we, you know, we're two and a half years into Donald Trump's presidency. He, the man does seem to enjoy a certain amount of chaos. Um, and, and, you know, look at last week, 
hard to remember it was only last week, but when we had a whole week thinking we were going to, uh, the United States was going to whack Mexico with these tariffs related to, you know, closing off the border and pretty much brought it right up to the, to the last minute, a nine, you know, a late Friday press conference by the Mexicans to say they were going to tighten up the border, send in the National Guard, um, take a few more of these asylum cases, and that, that threat went away. So then the China pot got pulled to the front of the stove, and, and we're back talking about that at the G20. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, we, we all chuckled a little bit at his comment today. Donald Trump is desperate for a meeting with, with uh, Xi Jinping, and don't let anything he said today, you know, steer you from steer you thinking differently. Um, it's funny. He said, oh, I don't care if we meet him or not. He cares very badly. Donald Trump, you know, he's a dealmaker. He thinks if he can sit across, the leader of the United States can sit across the table from the leader of China, two reasonable guys, they can work something out, everybody declares a victory, everyone goes home happy. Um, Xi, so far, is playing a little hard to get. Um, and Trump has made it kind of hard for Xi to come to the table, I think. Um, he keeps saying he has to come and talk to us. He doesn't have a choice. You know, his economy will suffer if he doesn't sit with me. And, I mean, Xi Jinping is a pretty powerful guy, and right. he's not going to be sort of goaded into a meeting with the President of the United States if he doesn't want to. So, we read that comment as that the United States are getting is getting signals that that Xi and Trump aren't going to meet in any meaningful way at the G20. I mean, they're all going to you know they're on, they're all in the same place. They're all in Osaka, Japan. I, I mean, they might have a quick what's known in Democratic parlance as a pull aside, where they kind of step into a room and chat for a minute, versus you know a full blown sit down across a long table and two sets of leaders and all of that. But we read this comment to mean that the United States may be starting to get a signal that China is serious, that we're not just going to meet for the sake of meeting. We're not going to meet just because Donald Trump thinks we should meet. We're only going to meet if we actually think there's some progress to be made. And right now, there doesn't seem to be a lot of progress to be made in the China trade talks. And we can't let you go, Craig, without asking you about the president's latest comments about Chair Jay Powell, a fractious relationship, it seems, at least rhetorically, from the president's side, uh, really almost since appointment or shortly after the appointment. What do you read in the latest comments? I guess we can't be shocked of this criticism. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it definitely waxes and wanes. Um, people may remember it was Bloomberg who broke the news right before Christmas that um, Donald Trump was is pretty seriously considering firing Jay Powell, or at least discussing the possibility of firing Jay Powell with a lot of his senior advisors and some of his sort of kitchen cabinet out there, uh, you know, in Wall Street and such. You know, he backed off of that. He, I think he, they convinced him that he really can't fire the Fed chair. I, I guess there are ways he can. It's, it's pretty hard to do. Yeah. But the comments today did seem a little more, like we wrote them up pretty big. Like, they seemed a little more, I mean, it's, you know, everything with Trump is so personal. It's like, he's my choice, and I disagree with him about everything, was pretty much the quote. Yeah. You're like, whoa, you know, that's like, that's just a very personal and a very visceral um, thing. I mean, look, a lot of people think they're Fed's going to maybe do what Donald Trump wants him to do next week, so we'll see if that's what, what happens or not. But, you know, you, you feel like Donald Trump is never going to be truly satisfied until he gets someone sitting in the, in the chairman's seat that is, is of his own. Right. You know, he, he picked Jay Powell, but as someone more to his liking. Yeah. Do we think this means he's about to move on Powell? I, I, I would not say that. I could not say that. We have no reporting to back that up. Right. We're going to leave it there. Craig Gordon, thanks so much. Washington Bureau Chief Executive Editor for Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly 
on Bloomberg Radio. We were talking earlier on in the show, Carol, about the IPO market. Uh, Dave Wilson, you know, mentioning Chewy.com, you know, that obviously working in in the pet world. That's a straight ahead IPO. We've seen a number of those as well. But next week, we get a direct listing from a big name unicorn. We've talked to guests about this, about how you might see more companies do that. This is more direct. It's cheaper to some extent, right, in terms of not having an underwriter and going through all of that. So let's talk about this story. You can find it online at Bloomberg.com about how banks now are battling for fees as companies such as Slack choose a direct path to go public. Shanali Basik is investment banking reporter at Bloomberg News. Joe Weber, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Direct listings. So exciting, Shanali. So, but what does it mean for all the bankers right. that you talk with? Are they scaling down their uh, Hamptons uh, rentals for the summer? Last year, all of them were insanely afraid and thinking about how they should change their businesses. This year, a lot of defensiveness. Oh, this is not going to be the next model. But then you have Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, which are pioneering this model, really. They've done one in Spotify. The Spotify CFO gets a lot of the credit for building mm-hmm. this model up. But Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Allen & Co. are the three banks that really really matter here. They share a bulk of the fees, even though they're like lower fees in aggregate, they still get a bigger share of that pie. So they make out quite well. And they're in talks with, you know, a dozen companies each now to do it potentially in the future. So for me, one of the things that I found interesting about this is sort of, I mean, it is, IPO is a thing, man. Like this is how you go public. So the idea that there's this alternative way to go public and that, uh, there's maybe less of a pot of gold at the end of that for the bankers that work on it. That's to me what's kind of interesting. So, Shanali, when you talk to your people, how how are the underwriters responding? The people that are working on it are saying, you know, this is something that could definitely be a possibility for people in the future. Don't get me wrong; it sounds easy. Forget the IPO, just go public, right? But the thing about it is you lose a lot about a traditional IPO that's a good thing for you, such as the banks lining up dozens and dozens of investors beforehand, flying between Silicon Valley and New York, sitting in private hotels and pitching that company's story, promising research analysts. You miss out on all of that in a direct listing. And so they tend to be – or they – or expected to be more volatile. And so if Slack is swinging around a lot on Thursday, that could really cause a dent in a lot of people doing it in the future. But if it doesn't? But if it doesn't, then we might see a lot more. But I think the other part that's interesting here is like, you know, Spotify and now Slack, these are companies that like people knew about when they went public, right? It wasn't like an unknown. So they have sort of, you know, they've been out there and have been part of the zeitgeist and the culture for a while. So maybe these are fine for direct listings and other companies will still need to use IPOs. Well, and Joel, I, I want to ask you this question because you, I know, think about this from the broader perspective of the magazine. You know, we're at this point where the everyday business person maybe and certainly the everyday investor may be a little skeptical of Wall Street and its motives of what we've lived through no. uh, over no. the past uh, decade or so. Do you think that that's part of what's underlying this, the, this whole sort of trust of Wall Street? I, I think it has more to do with how executives are viewing uh, their business trajectory than yeah. anything else. This is less to do about the public yeah. than it is about like cash day. And, yeah. and growth trajectories. Yeah. And I wonder, Shanali, too, you know, when you think about some of the IPO's performance, not just the stock performance, but also 
the banks just kind of getting it wrong, you know, sort of miss, sort of mispricing well, on one end or the we other. Get yeah, lift, right. That There's was a, a traditional debate. IPO, and you do wonder. Okay, so maybe direct listings would be more volatile, but certainly Lyft was volatile. Some people like the fact that you have the fifteen percent pop on the IPO day. It means you know that there's there's if you're lucky. Right. Yeah, it's a marketing thing. Some people hate it because uh, there's money left on the table if the stock is popping. So the direct listing, you know, we've been calling it the great democratization, right? It's a very sim- Silicon Valley thought that the markets will set the price and the banks won't. So here's an idea that I was going to kick around with you, Shanali, which is the number in your story, $22 million in, in fees, basically, that are gonna, is going to get divided three ways, effectively. That seems really, I mean, it seems pretty good, honestly, but it's also, like, smaller than it would be if it were an IPO, right? So how much different is it as a direct listing than as an IPO? Like, what? how big would that fee pot have been had Slack been an IPO? People say that, you know, and this is just spitballing around numbers, for Spotify, for Slack, it could be around 30% lower than a typical fee. 30% higher? uh, An IPO would be about 30% higher. However, it's not... Um, remember, it's only three banks sharing this rather than 20 banks sharing it. So Goldman, Morgan Stanley Allen still making out pretty well here. The thing about it is, you know, the early direct listings, very intensive in teaching investors what it is. It has a lot of paperwork involved. The Spotify certainly had a lot of talks with the SEC and um, New York Stock Exchange to change the rules and figure out what the right rules were. And so the beginning is tough. The fees are still quite high. Will they go down significantly in the future? That's a real possibility as well. But what's the impetus or, the, or why would someone who is bringing their company to public want to do this route instead of a, a traditional IPO? So there's no lockup, for, for one thing, that yeah. people can sell and buy their shares on day one. The other thing is companies are going public so much later. Right, they already have very robust shareholder bases that are already trading the stocks in private markets, and so do they. They don't need to raise money. They don't need the money. It seems like it's at the core of this. If you can, you can either raise money and uh, spend seven percent on the proceeds and pay a bank, or you could raise that money privately and pay two percent, or you can go to debt markets instead. And there's a, a, a ton of different ways to finance your company now. Why do it through an IPO? What I find interesting here too, though, is that. You know, when Spotify did it, and this is why I wanted to do this story sooner rather than later. When when Spotify did this, it was sort of an anomaly. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It was just a different season, and it was by itself. But now, effectively, as all the unicorns have gone public via IPOs, we have a head-to-head situation where you've got IPO model versus direct listing, right? So that, to me, is the most interesting thing here because – if it proves to be viable as a bunch of unicorns are, are exiting that enchanted forest, then I think it could kind of get, gather a lot more interest. Well, and it does feel like every executive who's thinking about an IPO is being asked about a direct listing. I think about Peloton. You know, yeah. that was one of the questions yeah. that is one of the questions that's come up with John Foley as to whether he may pursue that avenue. And to Joel's point, it's hard to imagine that question being posed a couple years ago. That's certainly right. And again, Spotify. And, you know, there's a debate. Is a direct listing really new? There are some things that look like it in the market. But um, Spotify was the first really big company to utilize this model in this way. By the way, something we didn't point out in the story that is worth noting, there was one other direct listing this year that was much less widely publicized. It was an insurance company, tiny little insurance company. 
uh, J.P. Morgan did the listing. The stock I'm looking at, it's called Watford Holdings. It fell five days in a row after. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you know. But, that, like, had, had you ever heard of Watford Holdings beforehand? Well, I'm the insurance reporter. Yeah, okay. I was the insurance the reporter. one person in the newsroom <laughs> who, right. who, who knew about it. Shanali was running around. Everybody looking at Watford? <laughs> WTRE. Correct, correct. Both, but to your point, Watford wasn't something a lot of people knew about, right? So is this model something for the companies that everybody knows about that can market themselves, already have big shareholder bases? It might be a tougher thing to pull yeah. off for a smaller company that just wants to save a bunch of money on an IPO. For the record, it's up now. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> to it's, be fair. Um, so I, I, this is out of ignorance. If IPOs, I just assumed that was how it always happened, and here's direct listings, it's another way. Are there other ways that people can go public that I don't know about? Oof. Are there other ways besides like a reverse spinoffs, SPACs? Yeah, I mean, really we're a reverse now. merger. I mean, yeah. sometimes if you've got a shell company, SPACs, obviously, I know that's something you've uh, looked into a lot. Shelley, yeah, people right? creating a lot of private equity folks will create vehicles um, that are created just to buy a company and then start trading them publicly. So that's another way to do it. Um, the ex-head of private equity, uh, Chin Chu at Blackstone, uh, has a spa- pretty well-known spec. to me what this also speaks to is Boy, if I'm doing a direct listing rather than an IPO, to me, part of the equation as a business leader is maybe I don't have to pay a banker quite so much, right? right? And if that's true and this is just one option, you would think that there might be some other options that other companies might explore. Totally. The thing that's amazing, too, is just real quick, the IPO fees, that 7% fee, there's been some pressure on it over time. But mm-hmm. The biggest IPOs pay like 3%. You know, Uber or Lyft was maybe two percent right Pinterest four percent but you know generally fees have stayed high for as long as we've known right well it's a very very good story and one certainly well read across Wall Street today Shanali Basak investment banking reporter Uh, Joel Weber stick with us for one second just want to take advantage of the fact that you're here Uh, give us your highlights yes exactly (laughs) Uh, give us your highlights for the issue this week as we go into the weekend what's what's your must read if you can pick among them I mean I think the Peter Waldman cover story is a great place to start because I think um, you know if you if you really boil this thing down about uh, about why you should read it right now. I mean, we live through all this trade war rhetoric. There's a lot of it that uh, that you know changes on a day-to-day basis. Right. But the heart of Peter's story is uh, this quote in there that's called "Researching While Asian," and that's becoming effectively a crime. It's amazing, and that's why you know this cover story of like how not to cure cancer. The U.S. is purging uh, Chinese scientists in a new red scare. I think it's really relevant right right now. Um, I think the GE story is an epic one, yeah. right? Of like of all the CEO challenges that you could wrestle with, I think GE basically looks like this Gordian knot that uh, that Larry Larry Culp is trying to unravel. Uh, and it, boy, I mean, it is like Herculean effort um, yeah. and challenge, right? Yeah. And like, it's not totally clear if he's going to get out of it yet. And I have to say that story, I really like the GE story in part because I didn't have a sense of who Larry Culp was no one did. before yeah. that story. He's like a great unknown. That's why we, we put the ball in motion. We were yeah. like, who is this guy? Yeah. Danaher is this like, everybody on Wall Street has loved Danaher. And yet we know nothing about yeah. who he was, where Danaher is the company that he led before GE and effectively he came out of retirement. He went to Harvard, you know, like 
taught some classes and then yeah. the GE job came up and like everybody's like, wait, who's that guy? And if you know anything about Danaher, everybody was like, I know that guy. I'm yeah. buying stock. Yeah. And you do wonder, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on him, right? He's, it's not like Danaher was kind of under the radar. GE is totally on everybody's radar. And look, like, I, can any CEO pull this off? I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, and I think that's probably part of the, the calculus of why he took that job is like, I, I got to try. You got to love a guy, though, that when he was at Danaher and they were buying companies and one company that he bought that made like braces, braces and yeah. he actually put the braces, the braces Epic. put on. Epic. Like, you got to like wonder about I, I mean, but who it, this guy is. I, and the how thing he that operates. I take away from that is sort of this appreciation for who your customers are. Yeah, right. Like totally. yeah. I want to be f- experiencing what they're experiencing. Understand. And if, it. if you get in the GE weeds, like I think that probably says something. Yeah. So for how much more, time do you give him? Twelve months. Uh, I think he gets. I mean, look, he's he's been been Since on October, it for yeah. for less than a year. So he gets a year checkup. And then you probably have another six months yeah. where you're like, okay, like either you're figuring it out or you're not. So right. Probably another year. Joe Weber, thank you, thank you, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Listen. Do you want to know a secret? Right. If there's one thing I love, Carol, it's an insider book. And I'm fascinated, as are many, with The Secrets of Sand Hill Road. Well, you want those? You got it. It's the name of a new book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road. It's by Scott Cooper. He is managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Heard of it. He joins us on the phone from Menlo Park, California. And he brings to the table and to this book mm-hmm. experience on both sides of the equation. Yep. And that's what makes it so valuable. Scott, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. Well, congrats on the book, first of all. And I got to start, what, what made you want to write this? Yeah, you know, I've been, I've been in the tech business for about 25 years. I was a banker. I was a, at a startup for a number of years and then now in venture for 10 years. And I just found I kept getting the same questions from entrepreneurs about how's the business work and, you know, even as fundamental as should I even take venture capital. Yeah. And uh, I just felt like it was finally time to hopefully peel the covers back and give people a sense of what was actually happening in the uh, venture world. What, would, what do you think that people reading this might find the most surprising in terms of access to capital in the VC world? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. Probably most interesting is, um, is kind of how venture capitalists evaluate deals and what are the most important things for them. And so a lot of people think, you know, kind of obviously product is the most important and certainly product is important. But so much of our evaluation at these early stages is really the team. And it's really trying to assess, okay, what is it that makes this team uniquely qualified to go after the opportunity? And I find that a lot of people kind of, quite frankly, give short attention to their backgrounds and kind of how they came to the process of starting the company. And in the early days when there's not much to evaluate, that really becomes kind of the major determinant of whether VCs invest or not. Well, and we're at such an interesting moment in the VC world, it seems like, Scott, because you know, on the one hand, you know, kind of bigger than ever in, in a lot of ways, certainly high in the consciousness as we think about unicorns and folks making money on big IPOs and, and whatnot. And, and yet we're also uh, at a point where, you know, people are skeptical of any kind of big money. How do you sort of um, – how do you – figure out what's good money and what's bad money or what's not so good money if you're on if you're lucky enough to be sort of assessing various uh vcs yeah no it's a really good uh, it's a really good point we are definitely in a great spot right now where we've got a bunch of ipos that are coming out which is nice there's also just a huge amount of very early stage venture activity happening so you know if you're an entrepreneur looking to do something this is a great opportunity and a great time to be starting a business 
look, the way, the way we think about it is, look, if you're picking VCs, I think the most important thing to think about is what else besides money can the VC do for you? So, you know, capital used to be a scarce resource in this business. As you mentioned, it's no longer the case. And so the real differentiator now among VC firms is, you know, what can they do to help you achieve your vision as an entrepreneur, whether that's making introductions to customers or to executives or, you know, helping, you know, manage the press and figure out how best to navigate that. Those are the things I think that will set apart the VC firms, you know, for the next probably 10, 20 years. So, you know, what's fascinating, too, I look around, Scott, and there is so much money out there. And I do wonder how that is impacting kind of the valuation phase of all of this or or what I don't know what impact do you think it is ultimately having? You're you're smack in the middle of it. Yeah, no, look, there is definitely a lot of capital. It's interesting. If you look at the numbers from last year, uh, the industry in the U.S. invested about one hundred and thirty billion dollars in startup companies. And 70% of that money went into rounds that were $100 million or greater, right? So you have this huge concentration of money happening at the very late end of the market. Um, I think the, the reason we're seeing that is because these companies used to go public, right? We used to have companies go public six, six and a half years from when they were started. Now that's really 10 to 12 years. And so I think what's really happening in the market is you really just have this massive shift of wealth and of capital from the public markets into the private markets. Right. Uh, and that's what's actually making it look like you know, the numbers are growing incredibly, which they are, but it's really, quite frankly, just a shift of dollars that otherwise would have occurred in the public markets. And so, you know, one of the things you talk about in the book, which I find so fascinating, Scott, is, you know, some of the the darker side or some of the, you know, more harrowing moments, including what happens when there's a down round? Uh, What's the advice for folks? Because they do get into those situations where all of a sudden the company's actually less uh, worth less. Yeah. Yeah. Look, those are no fun. And obviously, uh, you know, no entrepreneur sets out to build a business and have to be in a situation where they have to raise money, obviously, at a lower price than they did before. But what we talk about in the book, and and I think is the most important piece here, is that's when you just have to have a conversation with your venture capitalists and say, look, do we still believe in the market? Do we still believe in the product? And if so, then quite frankly, let's take the pain that we know a down round is going to entail and let's, you know, write the capital structure so that we can actually, you know, go about trying to set out what we set to do in the first place. And look, if the market's changed or if, you know, kind of you've decided, hey, look, this isn't your life's passion anymore, that's a perfectly fine answer, in which case, you know, we should just work together and figure out a way to kind of, you know, wind down the business and make sure we take care of the employees. So, you know, it's not a fun thing, but I think if you have the open, honest conversation, at least our experience has been, that that makes a huge difference. Scott, 20 seconds, advice to somebody who's looking for VC capital, just got to be quick. Yeah, big advice is make sure that you uh, know what comes along with that money. You know, what's the government change, governance changes, all the other things that it entails. And if you're ready to sign up for that bargain, then by all means, go for it. Cool stuff. Yeah, really good. It's a really good read. Some great details, some great guidance in there. Uh, a must read for anyone who's looking to understand the venture capital world. The book is Secrets of Sand Hill Road. The author, Scott Cooper, he joined us on the phone from Menlo. Well, let me tell you So as the trade war heats up, we want to know how it's impacting companies. And we also know that the majority, the vast majority of companies here in the United States, they're small businesses. So let's get into this with Bill, excuse me, Bill Phelan. He is co-founder and president of Paynet based in Chicago. That's where he joins us from. Bill, thanks so much for joining Carol and myself. Glad to be here. Great. Uh, so tell us what you are hearing, because you lend, uh, you, you 
understand the commercial lending space. You analyze uh, the data there. What are you hearing from small businesses in terms of how these tariffs and threatened tariffs are playing through? Well, look, I mean, there's concern, right? Because it really uh, can impact the confidence of small businesses. They're easily spooked. You know, in 2019, they're confident right now. I mean, we saw some really good numbers come out last month. But they can reverse course so quickly. And um, we all have seen some of the surveys out. And some of them, you know, talk about how trade is the biggest concern. But I think that small businesses could feel this even faster. They could be spooked so quickly and shift course so quickly that uh, this could be a real uh, kind of game changer for a lot of small companies. So help me out here explain, because I think there was a conventional wisdom that, you know, small companies were somewhat immune to U.S.-China trade wars and trade wars in particular because so much of what they do is here, you know, their business is predominantly here domestically in the United States. Is it our perception about what small business is? Has it changed over the last few years? And so maybe that's not the case anymore? I think you're right, Carol. There's not a huge export uh, market from small business, right? But uh, it's confidence, right? And the higher cost can easily flow through to the small business. I mean, if we're paying more for steel, eventually that finds its way into a small manufacturing company, and they're going to pay the price for it. Um, They operate on very thin margins, razor-thin margins, and they can't move manufacturing to another country like a lot of big corporations can. And so the other key thing about small businesses, they just can't pass these costs on to competitors. You know, they're really concerned about losing customers. Or, and when they pass costs on to customers, excuse me, I misspoke there, but when they pass that cost on to customers, it will drive the customers away, right? Customers can go to a big box store or they can go to an online competitor. So they don't want to risk that and they don't want to really kind of even go there. It's kind of like the third rail. They don't want to even touch that third rail. So it can easily just those costs will pass through and it can easily impact the small businesses' economics. And, Bill, how soon do you think we will know the extent uh, of it and, you know, how – I guess, how marked it will be? You know what? Um, That's a great question, Jason, and we're seeing it right now. There's rising uncertainty for small businesses. And what we see is that 2018 was boom time for small companies. We see first quarter of 2019 was a big pause. You know, it was a big put everything on hold and let's hold on and see what we get. Now, April, small business was a comeback kid. They uh, put a lot of money to work. They hit all-time highs on their borrowing and their investment in property, plant, and equipment. And so it looks like a great number just in the last 30 days, but the reality is there's more uncertainty and more volatility in that number. You know, with the first three months as pause, and now we got a big number, it's a lot of volatility. And I think it just says that there's kind of some uncertainty among these small companies. And uh, it can really push these small businesses to stop borrowing and slow their investments, slow their hiring, slow their expansion plans. And they're a huge part of the economy. So this could have a big impact on the U.S. GDP. Well, that's the good. That's the point, right? Because we talk about how much small businesses contribute to the overall U.S. economy. And so when we start to figure out how this might play out, we've really got to kind of track that. So what metrics are you following? What are you hearing from some of the small business community? Well, what we hear is that um, that the metrics are showing investment expansion just in the last 30 days, mm-hmm. and it was double digit, it went up 11.4 percent. But that was after those three months of really flat on its back pause, 
And, you know, so that just shows that uncertainty right now. And it's that, you know, the good news is those last 30 days was broad-based. It was construction companies, trucking companies, manufacturers. Uh, the only industry we're not seeing really kind of playing in, in that expansion mode is um, a combination of foods. These are, uh, you know, like restaurants and dining right. establishments. But what we do see is that their financial health is very strong. And so while they're kind of putting some of that investment a little bit more cyclical, maybe more pausing some of the investment, and, uh, you know, maybe more uncertainty in the investment, right. at least their financials are very strong right now. We All right. We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately, Bill. Bill Phelan is co-founder and president of PayNet, joined us from Chicago with a nice view of how these trade tensions are affecting small businesses. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.